Well, good morning and welcome to you all this first Sunday in the new year. It's so good to be able to worship together. We had such a great Christmas as a church across all of our campuses. So thankful for our staff and for all the many volunteers that made all the different services happen. You know, we're blessed as a church to have multiple campuses, which means multiple more issues and complications. And we were able to, I think, just do a a great job reaching out to our community. And so I want to welcome all of our different sites right now, all of you here in the worship center, all of you over in the chapel this morning, all of you at our Minnetonka campus, and anyone watching online. It's so good to be together in the new year as we kick off a new sermon series. I always like to do a a series on a book of the Bible when we come back after the Christmas break. And so for the month of January and February, we're going to be looking at a book called First Peter, which maybe you're super familiar with and maybe you've never read before. It's towards the back end of the New Testament. It's not super long, but we're going to go each week and just take a little chunk and dive in and see what God wants to speak into our lives in this new year. So what I want to encourage you to do is to bring a Bible with you. Now that could be like an old fashioned paper copy, which is always good. Or you could just download the Bible app on your phone and have it there. I like to think of it like when you go to a sporting event or a, you know, a musical performance and you get a program, it helps you kind of know what's coming, what's going on. This is our program. We want to be able to dive into God's word together. So even right now, if you don't have the Bible app, you could download it on your phone. You could dial up first Peter chapter one and we'll be good to go. So I've been thinking a lot lately about hope because it seems like as much as we might want to be hopeful and optimistic about a new year and about our country, about our world, there are a whole lot of reasons every day to be fearful, to worry, to be full of anxiety even, to be skeptical about what's coming next. If you follow the news at all, there seems to be a hope deficit throughout our country in all different groups of people. You know, there's, there's been surveys that say younger generations are incredibly fearful and are lacking hope because of the crush of the economy. It's one of the first times that a majority of younger generations are less hopeful about the future than generations before. Now, you may or may not have heard this. It might be news to many of you, but there is an election coming up in 2024. hate to break it to you, but you know, with that prospect on the horizon, there can be a lot of feelings of fear and dread and hopelessness. As Christians, it might seem increasingly like we're swimming upstream in culture, There's more and more people that are opting out of the faith, that are walking away, that want nothing to do with Christianity anymore. And so again, there's a lot of reasons to be fearful and to be anxious. So I don't know about you, but as much as I want to be hopeful and I want to be optimistic about what's coming, It's easy to start doom scrolling on my phone and then suddenly wonder if there is any 
reason for hope at all. Now, of course, there are many great verses and passages in the Bible about hope and about how to handle fear and anxiety in our lives. But there's one book in the New Testament that I think especially applies clearly to many of our realities and our experiences in this new year, and it's the book of First Peter. You see, Peter was writing to a group of people who were amidst hostility and mistreatment because of their faith. They were living in a culture that was seemingly unstable. There was a lot of fear and skepticism about the governing authorities. Life in the first century, as you can imagine, was not easy in the first place. But if you added onto that a faith and a devotion to Jesus, it got that much harder. And so there were all kinds of reasons for the people that Peter was writing to, to live in fear, to live in anxiety, to feel hopeless. And so we're going to see right off the bat, as we dive into chapter one this morning, that Peter's first encouragement to his readers, but it's also such an important reminder for all of us today, is this simple idea. We need to remember who we are. All right, as we face a chaotic, a dark, a crazy world, as we don't know what's coming around the corner in 2024, we need to start by remembering who we are. Now, have you ever had a time in your life when you've seemingly forgotten who you are? You know, maybe you were so focused on trying to fit in with some crowd. Maybe you've tried so hard to just be cool. Maybe you wanted to be like someone else so much that you really forgot who you really were. Now, maybe this was in middle school. We all remember how awkward those days were. Maybe it was freshman year in college as you started to carve a new path for yourself. Maybe it was at your first job and you're trying to figure out how to fit in. Maybe you were just trying to impress somebody that you had a crush on. Can you remember a time when you seemingly forgot who you really were. You see, remembering who you are, remembering your true identity can be so powerful in our lives because there is this truth. Your identity will shape your direction. Your identity will shape your direction, your identity impacts the decisions you make. Your identity impacts the words you choose to speak. It helps determine your priorities and so much of who we are. And so early in 2024, on this day, and in the days and the weeks and the months ahead, Peter is saying to you and to me, remember who you are. So what I want to do this morning is just walk through the first five verses of 1 Peter chapter 1, because there is so much richness and goodness in just that short, short chunk. So again, if you have your Bible or your Bible app, I'd encourage you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. And here's how Peter starts out. He says, this letter is from Peter. All right, it's good to know. An apostle of Jesus Christ. I am writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners 
in the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, just different regions in modern-day Turkey. So Peter starts out this entire letter by giving his credentials. He's telling us why we should pay attention to what he has to say. Now, we know a lot about Peter in comparison to a lot of other people in the Bible. Now, even if you're not a regular churchgoer, maybe you're not familiar with the Bible, you probably know some things about Peter. Peter was a fisherman who dropped everything in order to follow Jesus. Now, you might know Jesus had 12 really close friends that he did life with and he traveled through his ministry with. But out of those 12 close friends, there were three that he was especially close to. It was kind of like his inner circle. And Peter was one of these three in the inner circle. And Peter was a fiery and a passionate follower of Jesus. He had lots of ups and downs in his life, extreme highs and extreme lows. Peter never liked to be lukewarm. He was all in for better or for worse. Now he had a shining moment when he was the one who was able to confess who Jesus truly was. He said, Jesus, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And he was praised for that confession. But in the very same conversation, he tried to talk Jesus out of going to the cross and he was called Satan. So talk about an extreme high and an extreme low. There was that time that Peter was willing to climb out of the boat and to walk on water. But then when his faith started to go down, he started to sink into the water again and up and down. When Jesus was arrested, Peter sprung up and he cut off the ear of one of the soldiers, which when you think about it, meant either he had really bad aim or he was oddly precise. I'm not sure which one. But then a few hours later, he had maybe the lowest point of his life when he denied even knowing Jesus, one of his best friends. He denied knowing him three different times. So when Jesus was raised from the dead, he set up a meeting with Peter. But instead of shaming him, instead of calling him out, instead of kicking him out of the inner circle, Jesus chose to restore him. Jesus covered over all of his failures and his sins, totally restored him and healed him. And not only that, he called him to an even greater role in the kingdom. And so in the book of Acts, which is the history of the early church, it's when the early church began to catch on fire. Peter was the very first one to get up and preach a message. And we're told that on the spot, 3,000 people gave their lives to Christ and were saved. And in the rest of the book of Acts, we see Peter living boldly, but also suffering for the gospel. He was imprisoned and ultimately he too was crucified. But not just that, he was crucified upside down as a martyr for the faith. So that's who the author of 1 Peter is. He was well acquainted with suffering 
for Jesus, but he also had a passionate and contagious love for Jesus, and he wants to pass it on to the entire church and to us. So Peter introduces himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ, which is so important because it establishes his authority in writing this letter. An apostle simply means one who is sent out. And he was commissioned by Jesus himself. So hearing that Peter was an apostle should give us great confidence in what he has to say to us. And the very first thing then that Peter does after introducing himself and giving his authority is to remind his readers of their identity. And he doesn't just say, hey friends, or dearly beloved, or to all the generic believers and members of the church. No, instead, he wants to clearly remind us of our identity. And so he says, I am writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners. I'm writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners. Now, there are two powerful and descriptive words that are also seemingly contradictory. To be chosen, but also to be a foreigner, to be an outsider, to be an exile, even some translations say. That is our God-given identity in Jesus. We are chosen, yet we are also foreigners. Now, the language that Peter uses is incredibly purposeful, and it would have been especially meaningful to his first century audience. Because in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was known as God's chosen people. But now in 1 Peter, Peter is using that same descriptor that was once reserved for Israel to now include an audience of Gentiles, which is people who were not Jewish. He's expanding the circle of the family of God. He's saying, just like God chose Israel and gave them his protecting love and gave them a purpose, the same is now true for you. You are God's family. You are God's chosen people. Now, he's going to pick up that theme a few more times throughout the letter, but one of the key places is in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. He says, but you, talking to all of us, you in Christ are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Again, all of this language is language that was used to describe the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. And now we're being told, but God has chosen us. He showered his love on us. He has a great purpose for us. He's expanded the boundaries of his chosen people. You, your identity is that you were chosen by God, but also you are a foreigner an exile on earth. Now, this is another word that was used to describe the nation of Israel and the Jewish people as they were displaced from their homeland 
Sometimes because of their own sin and other times because of persecution. Now Paul is using that same descriptor to describe all of us who are in Christ. He's saying you aren't necessarily separated from your homeland physically. You are separated spiritually from your true home, which is now in heaven. When you put your trust in Jesus, your citizenship is no longer on earth or in a particular nation or state, but instead your true citizenship is in heaven. I mean, you might still live in the same town you grew up in. You might even live in the same home you grew up in. But now your identity is that of a foreigner, an outsider, an exile, because that's how it's going to feel navigating your way through this world today. And it's because the way of Jesus is so contrary to the way of the world. Different values and ideals and beliefs. When we come to faith, they're all changed. The people that Peter was writing to were experiencing great persecution and suffering because of their faith. And he's telling them, you're living in this tension of being accepted and chosen by God himself, but also being rejected and ridiculed by the people around you because you are chosen foreigners. Now, I always bristle when I hear someone living in America claim that they're being persecuted. All right? And it's because there's terrible, terrible persecution all over the world. Dozens were killed in Nigeria this past week simply for being Christian. People meet in secret in China and could be killed on the spot if they're found out. And so someone making fun of us, someone disagreeing with us, someone arguing with us is not being persecuted. It's far from it. But we also need to realize that we're not always going to feel at home as we make our way through this life. And the thing is, when we feel too much at home, it maybe is a red flag that we're not keeping our priorities straight. And it's because the way of Jesus is so different than the way of the world. Now, the way of Jesus is way too rigid and legalistic for some people, but on the other hand, it's sometimes too loving and too graceful for others. Jesus challenges our worldly values and our ambitions and our structures and our hunger for power and our empires. We were born here on earth but we were adopted by God. And so our ultimate citizenship, our loyalty, our allegiance is in heaven. And so the rest of our lives then are lived into this tension where our faith in God is different than the many people around us who don't acknowledge him or honor him or respect him. You know, the world wants us to conform to it, 
The world wants to form us into its image, but when we're living for Christ, that doesn't feel right. There's a tension that's there, and it's because of our new and our true identity, Peter would say. You see, the truth is the way of Jesus and the way of the world are so different, so divergent, that eventually it's impossible for someone living as a chosen foreigner, someone truly living for Jesus, to just fly under the radar, to go unnoticed. Eventually, it's going to come out if we're truly living out our faith. And so the key to managing that tension and that friction that we might experience Peter says, is to remember who you are. Now in verse 2, Peter explains the reason for our new identity. So let's look at verse 2. He says, God the Father knew you and chose you long ago, and his spirit has made you holy As a result, you have obeyed him and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, just that one verse can send us down a theological rabbit hole. And in fact, just that one verse is often taken by different theological camps to make some pretty stark claims. Now, there are some people who believe in the ultimate sovereignty of God, which means that everything is predestined and predetermined by him and we have no free will. On the other hand, there are other people who put it solely into our control, where we have to work our way and earn our way to God's favor. And so Christians typically fall somewhere on that spectrum and all over the place. And maybe you have some strong convictions about those theological ideas. Now, here's the thing. I believe that we can maybe land in some different places, but still maintain unity in Christ. And so what I want to point out, what's interesting to me in this verse, is how all three parts or persons of the Trinity play an important role in our salvation. So let's look at this. First, God the Father knew you and chose you. It means he set his love upon us in a personal way first. It means God took the initiative. Even despite our sin, he initiates our relationship with him first. He doesn't wait for us to get our act together. He doesn't wait for us to score enough points. He doesn't wait for us to prove our worth. No, he goes first. Now, sometimes people wonder, why do we baptize young children here at Calvary? And this is one of the reasons, because we believe God initiates his relationship with us first. And it's a live action example of that. But then look at what Jesus does. Jesus plays his role. He demonstrates his love by dying on a cross while we were still sinners. He took care of sin and death and evil once and for all so that there's no longer a barrier between us and God. But it doesn't stop there because the Holy Spirit plays a role as well. The work of the Spirit is to convict us and to bring us 
to Jesus Christ. You see, God initiates the relationship. He does all of the heavy lifting through Jesus, and then he waits for our faithful response. Meanwhile, the Holy Spirit calls us, enlightens us, and sets us apart. That's what it means to be made holy, to be set apart. The Holy Spirit begins a process of forming us into the image of Jesus. So let's put it this way. We have been chosen by God, and we have been saved by the Son, and we have been called and set apart by the Holy Spirit. It takes the work of all three persons of the Trinity to bring us to salvation and to give us a new identity. An amazing, miraculous, and powerful thing. So we've talked about who we are, this new identity we have. We've talked about the reason we have that identity. But next, Peter is going to show us how this identity will give us hope, the hope that we truly need. So I want to read through the next three verses straight through, and then we'll break it down verse by verse. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. All right, so let's start with verse three. Our first source of hope is this. We're born again to a living hope. Now at birth, we are identified genetically, right? We are given DNA that we share with our parents for better or for worse. We're also identified ethnically. I'm Norwegian, Swedish, and Welsh. I'm sure you have your list. Maybe you've done one of the DNA tests before. And it's fun to figure out our ethnic identity. We're also born with a national identity, right? By virtue of where we're born, we're given citizenship in a particular country. But we also are given a socioeconomic identity. It's usually based on the standing in society of our family of origin. But now, Peter talks about a new birth. And this new birth gives a new identity and a new citizenship that is deeper than our DNA. And what's most important to highlight that Peter wants us to see here is that this new birth gives us a living hope. Now, hope is not some vague wish or desire. It's not like when we say, I hope this guy gets done preaching soon. Or, you know, I hope we're having pizza for dinner. Or I hope the Vikings can finally win one game. No, biblically, hope is a certain expectation of a future event. I'll say that one more time. Hope is a certain expectation of a future 
event. Peter grounds our living hope in the resurrection of Jesus, who even though he was killed and breathed his last breath, didn't stay in the grave. Death is not and will never be the last word. Because of Jesus' resurrection, we have the hope of our own resurrection. And when we face struggles, and when we encounter tension because of our faith, or God forbid, if we ever face persecution, this is where we should find our living hope. Well, then in verse 4, Not only do we have a living hope and a promised resurrection, we have a future inheritance. Again, this is a reference to the covenant that God made with the nation of Israel in in the Old Testament. They were promised land as their inheritance, but when they rebelled against God, they were scattered around the world. But then through the prophets, God offered the hope that they could be restored and that they could be given their inheritance. And so now Peter is applying that old covenant language to all followers of Jesus. But here's the difference. Our inheritance can never perish or spoil or fade. Imagine the most beautiful place that you have ever Ben. Maybe it's on the beach. Maybe it's up in the mountains. Maybe it was on an island. Maybe it was on a boat. Well, here's the thing about this inheritance that we've been promised. It will cause the worst and most painful experiences of life to be completely overshadowed. But on the other hand, it will also cause the most exotic and beautiful and greatest memories of our life to pale in comparison. It's such an amazing inheritance. It should give us hope and confidence in the craziness of this world and this life. You see, spiritually speaking, we are temporary foreigners in this dark world. But we have the sure and certain hope of a future home that will never, ever lose its glory and splendor. Then one more source of hope, and that's that we are guarded by his power. We have a living hope. We have a future inheritance. That sounds great and everything, but how can we know amidst the struggles and temptations and even persecution that we might face, that we would be able to endure to the end so we can finally experience his promises. It can be difficult to live in a world that's often hostile or indifferent to our faith. It can be challenging to keep on living for Jesus when we face ridicule or even insults. I can't even imagine how much courage it would take to keep the faith and not deny Christ if my life were on the line and being threatened. And yet millions around the world, that's their daily reality. So a future inheritance is all well and good as long as we get there. So what reassurance do we have? Well, here's the good news, church. 
The God who keeps our inheritance secure in heaven is also the God who keeps us safe and secure on earth until the coming of our ultimate salvation. You see, the God who chose us and caused us to be born again to a living hope guards and protects and shields us by his power till the end. See, that's what our loving heavenly father does for all of his children. Now, one of the greatest threats to persevering in anything is losing faith, losing hope, losing belief. You know, whether you're running a marathon or whether you're working on another degree at school or whether you're finishing a project, if you stop believing, if you stop having faith, you're destined for failure. And so here, Peter reminds us, no matter how hard life may become, God sustains our faith by his power. Now, this is incredibly good news because it means when we face trials and tribulations and struggles, we aren't left to sustain our faith under our own power. I mean, we'd be destined for certain failure. No, by his own power, God guards and shields our faith so that nothing we face will cause us to lose it. So God gives us faith as a gift, but he also sustains and strengthens our faith until the last day. You know, really that's the promise that Paul's readers in the first century in Asia Minor needed to hear. But you know, I think it's the promise that you and I need to hear as we face struggles, as we face tensions in our world today. So church, remember who you are. Remember your identity. You are a chosen foreigner. And because of your identity, you have a living hope. And that's the hope of the resurrection. You have the promise of a future inheritance that will never spoil and will never fade. And you have a loving father who will guard you as he guides you home. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for the gift of your word handed down century after century that still speaks a helpful and a powerful and a fresh word into our lives today. God, you know the struggles, the trials, the tensions that we face as we seek to live for you. God, you know the ups and downs of our life. And so we're so thankful that you're a God who goes first, that you initiate the relationship, that you chose us before we could choose you. And so God, help us to respond in faithfulness and in obedience and in love. God, remind us that we can have hope no matter what we face, that we can have hope because of what you've done through Jesus, because of how you walk with us every step of the way, because of how you guard and protect our faith. And so God, as we go out into our week, into all that we're gonna face, 
Help us to stay focused on who we are in you and help us to remember because of you, we have a living hope. So God, we pray this in the powerful name of your son, Jesus. Let's all say together.